Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, March 22nd, is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Check it out, Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can, chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. I've seen a whole lot of catfish, some turtles. Uh, no gators yet, though. It is Tuesday, March 22nd, and this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, our former Chicago Reader colleague and co-host of First Tuesdays with Maya and Ben, it's Maya Dugmasova. And now your host... Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Scared Straight Tuesday. And here's why. Because I'm scared. That's why. I'll tell you why I'm scared. Wait a minute. Hold it. Let me do this right. Welcome back from a long weekend. Hope everybody had a lovely weekend. Dennis, I hope you had a lovely weekend. Did you have a lovely weekend, D? Lovely weekend. I'm glad you're bringing that bit back. I like that bit. (laughs) I I didn't know. I I never thought I would miss it, but I do. (laughs) Yeah, it was a good weekend. By the way, I work this weekend. Yes. I'm always working weekends. Working nine to five. Hey, oh, you pick little. up a part-time job? You working at Trader Joe's? Yeah, Trader Joe's. I, I, I would be good at Trader Joe's. There's no doubt in my mind I'd be really good at Trader Joe's. Uh, first of all, I would know where everything is. And I'd be like, you know how Trader, have you ever been to Trader Joe's? Yeah, yeah. The thing about Trader Joe's is that I think must have been taught to do this. The uh, the clerks there will lead literally lead you to where you have to go. Uh, sir, I would like to, what, I are the graham crackers and oh, let me take you there. <laughs> and they walk really fast. So I'm like sprinting to catch up. <laughs> and everybody looks like Magnum P.I. Yeah, that's that's true. They're like the Hawaiians in the Monday Night Bowling League. Yeah. Now they all wear the Hawaiian t sh- uh, shirts. Anyway, I'd be very good. Yeah, you'd sure. be. And also, too, uh, I know you're not hip to Walmart, but you'd be a great Walmart greeter. Oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> I was born to be a Walmart Walmart greeter. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I've been to a Walmart in my life. I saw that greeter. I go, I could do that. <laughs> There's some things I like. I could do that. It's a miracle I became a journalist, ladies and gentlemen. I get dyslexia. I can't spell. Other than that, great journalist. So uh, anyway, I went on a tangent there. I don't know how I got. Oh, the weekend, wonderful some, weekend. You said but something scary. Something scary. You're scared. Uh, yeah, I'm scared straight. No, I remember. I remember where I'm going. I just can't remember where I was coming from. Whoa! Get out the doobie on that one. 
Uh, but uh, yeah, no, I have to. Uh, I we did uh, we uh, things didn't work out on Friday for recording, so we did a Saturday recording. DJ Nate did a Saturday recording uh, with um, State Senator uh, Markwick, Rob Markwick. Oh, and I nice. urge, Yeah, I urge everybody to check it out. Uh, Rob was feeling good, man. He was like uh, letting his freak flag fly. And he was talking about, uh, oh, my God, Johnny Canzara and Mayor Lori Lightfoot. So it was a busy weekend. Anyway, but I woke up today and I was scared straight by Shia Capos. She, you know, ever since I switched to have her come onto my AOL account, I'm now the first thing I read every morning is Shia Capos. <laughs> and I had, she used to come into my that old reader account, which I never look at. I was always missing her. She's good. I got to give a shout out to her. She's really good. Absol- she, absolutely. So freaking thorough for Politico, every the Illinois political Illinois playbook. I didn't read it back in the day. Then I figured out how to switch it. All of a sudden, I'm like the smartest guy in the state of Illinois because I read Shia Capos. Okay. Well, you ready to get your mind real blown? It's a website, too. <laughs> you know that? <laughs> it did not. Hold on. <laughs> Illinois Politico. It's a website. My mind is so freaking blown right now. People just splattered everywhere. Anyway, so I read her today, and uh, she said, scared straight. She was the one who used that term, and they're talking about a new poll. This <laughs> is <Just> one <laughs> Uh, quote, there was a scared straight incident in a private House Democratic Caucus meeting the other day. Well, it clearly wasn't that private since I'm reading about it uh, in the Illinois playbook. Just saying. Uh, a poll was floated showing uh, a poll was floated showing Governor J.B. Pritzker facing suburban headwinds. I hear you ready for this, D. Even trailing Republican governor candidates Richard Irvin and Darren Bailey. The hog farmer is winning, according to Shia Kapos. Holy cow. I know. <laughs> I can't believe it. Oh, my goodness. Uh, problem is there was no explanation about which po- suburb was polled. Uh-oh. Oh, there we go. Now we're getting into the heart of things, D. Now we're getting the heart of things with these freaking polls. A source familiar with the data. Uh-oh. A source familiar with the data means they're not going to say who they are. You know, I got a hard time with sources who won't say who they are. Why don't you say who you are? No one's going to fire you. You don't live in Russia. Right. Well, you know. And no one's ever like, a source says ice cream is amazing. (laughs) No, no. no, The worst are when the Sun-Times does a source says that so-and-so is brilliant. Well, if he's sucking up to so-and-so, why does source need to be protected? But I think they like reporters think if they if it's an unnamed source, it's somehow or other ads. You know what I mean? Ads meaning to it. Well, this person is so important that you can't know who he or she is. But he or she is very important because only important people don't let you know who they are. What the? What? Huh? <laughs> what? Say what? To quote Scott Duff. That was a big Scott Duff thing. Remember, he used to say it. Oh, yeah. Um, Anyway, I just lost it. So, yeah, a source. A source close to the poll uh, tells Playbook that the burb wasn't Cook County, but conservative swing district areas where House Dems are trying to gain traction. That didn't prevent the gulp some lawmakers had. That's a funny sentence. That didn't prevent the gulp some lawmakers had. Like, ooh. 
I'm going to do that the right way. That didn't prevent the mm, somewhere. You like that gulp? That's a great gulp. Add that to the catalog. Uh, the the poll, which was first reported by Capital Facts blog. Yeah, Rich Miller. Come on. Rich Miller's the man. It's Rich Miller and Shia. Come on, Shia. You could have mentioned Rich Miller. You could have said Rich. Um, kind of rival. Don't you think they're kind of like rivals, D? No. no elbowing each other for no. the first scoop. <laughs> She's done it before. You know, I've seen it. Guys, you don't have to worry about me. I haven't had a scoop in like, I don't know, 90 years. So well, We kind of got one a few weeks ago with Sue Garza. Oh, yeah, we got it. Then I didn't even, then I got scooped in my own scoop. Eh, you know, it's charming. You know, it's charming. I'll tell you, Shia Capos and Rich Miller wouldn't have been scooped in their own scoop. I can tell you that right now. Got out of handle scoops, okay, kid? Both of them are younger than me, but I got to, like, I have this image of sitting down with them and they're saying, hey, like, son, let me tell you how the game is played. By the way, you we, get a scoop. You got to handle the scoop. We should keep our ear on the ground for the for this uh, Martwick interview. Maybe you know, maybe that'll happen too. Who knows? You know, be on the oh, lookout. Don't get scooped by your own scoop joined. again. Yeah, don't get. I know Martwick said a lot of interesting things. Uh, I probably will get scooped in that one too. God dang, I hate it when I get scooped. <laughs> um. Anyway, the poll, which was first reported by Capital Facts, Rich Miller, shout out, was conducted by Tulchin Research, the same group that is polled for Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle and New York Mayor Eric Adams. So that's her way of saying they're legitimate. The poll also addressed issues of concern, the top being crime, surprising anyone. We got uh, Maya Dukmasova coming on. That'll be kind of what we're talking about, sort of, maybe. Uh, others familiar with the poll say House Speaker Emmanuel Chris Welch, Dennis's favorite, uh, was trying to light a fire under Democrats to get them on the campaign trail by showing that no contest could be taken for granted. He asked his caucus to keep the numbers private, which didn't go so well. Yeah, I'm reading about him right now. <laughs> Oops. I don't believe Chris Welch, ever, if he said that, keep the numbers private, ever thought that anybody would keep the numbers private. In fact, I'll go so far as to say this, D. It was like this really complicated game of chess where Chris Welch told him to keep it private, knowing that they would go public with it, which would enable him to say, I told him to keep it private. Chris Welch plays his cards very close to his vest, ladies and gentlemen. A House Democrat spokesperson did not respond to request for a comment. There you go. Uh, the polls data created a kerfuffle, well, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, the bottom line is this. Democrats in this election cycle are very vulnerable, vulnerable on the issue of crime. We talked about this a lot on the show. Uh, and as such, the Republicans will be using absolutely everything they can to make it seem as though somehow or other the election of Democrats will mean the end of civilization as we know it, as a horde of violent criminals will descend upon us and destroy us. And that's their, uh, I guess that's what the polls show is a winning ticket for them. And that's what they're going to do. We'll have journalists like Maya Dukmasova working overtime to point out the fallibilities of their logic to show how the system is not working the way they say it's working, but it doesn't matter. They are going to broadcast this message 24 hours a day, seven days a week to scare voters into voting for Richard Irvin for governor against J.B. Pritzker. And I just I want to point out something. I cannot point this out enough. It's kind of appropriate that I'm pointing it out with Maya about to come on the show because we talk about judges a lot. But right now, as I, as we speak, uh, there's confirmation hearings in the Senate for Katanji Brown Jackson, Supreme Court nominee, uh, Justice Jackson, I hope, when it's all said and done. 
Uh, and Republicans are basically using it as their opportunity to broadcast a message intended uh, to scare the hell out of voters. And so they talk in terms of her as a public defender and how she represented uh, dangerous criminals. And so it's just like sending out this vibration that like what? If you're accused of a crime, you're not allowed to have a lawyer. You should just go directly to jail. Is that what they're saying? And I just want to contrast this. I wouldn't normally do this. I wouldn't play their game, but I feel I have to play their game. Richard Irvin, who, according to this poll, is doing very well against J.P. Pritzker because of the crime issue, is himself a criminal defense lawyer. And the Tribune did the story about a month ago, and I guess they just are ignoring it right now. He handled all kinds of uh, scary cases, kidnapping case, domestic violence, sexual assault, a man hit a cop, allegedly. But now he's not talking about that. They're all talking about how it's Democrats who are soft on crime. And my only point is this. In our system of justice, we're supposed to be able to defend ourselves. We're innocent until proven otherwise. Right now, they're trying to scare the hell out of you into thinking that anybody who had anything to do with representing, what, someone accused, is him is he responsible himself for the crime. That's what they're doing. That's the argument they're making for uh, against uh, to vote against Katanji Brown Jackson. I guess it'll work in terms of getting uh, Senate votes. It'll probably be a 50 50 uh, split. I don't know if any uh, Republican will vote for her. And so it'll have to come to Kamala Harris. But it's really interesting. It seems to be working at the moment. Uh, sad to say, as the um, this poll scared me straight uh, that was reported uh, in Shia's column today. All right. Uh, enough on that. I'll bring ben, back my uh, rem that? remember. I think we're done. The campaign, of course, is not done. Campaign, of course, is not done. <laughs> not done. <laughs> Flannery, giving the Mr. Urban a hard time. All right, Maya Dukbasova, uh, welcome back, Cotter. It's good to see your smiling face. Thanks for having me back. And before we get started, let's promote First Tuesday. And Maya, I don't know if you saw it. Uh, Maya was chastising me earlier today that I did not do a Facebook promotion of First Tuesday, and I was guilty on that front when she chastised me. But since then, I am now innocent. Okay, can you go from guilt to innocent? Uh, I've since promoted it on uh, Facebook, so the world should know about this great show we have lined up for uh, April 5th, Tuesday, April 5th at 6.30 at the hideout. Maya, why don't you tell the world who will be on our show? We have a very special show. I am very excited about this show. Um, we're calling it The Fall of the Velvet Hammer. This is a show devoted to discussing the rise and fall of Michael J. Madigan, uh, as much as this is possible to do in the span of about an hour and a half. <laughs> and our guests are going to be political consultant Elena Hampton and WBZ government and politics reporter Dave McKinney. So... These people, you could not find two people who know Mr. Madigan's political and legislative operation inside and out. And I'm really excited to talk um, with them about the aspect of uh, this entire, well, his career and the scandal surrounding him from the perspective of of, of politics and, and, and political, you know, organizing power plays and all of that, but also to talk about 
you know, what this man did to help and hurt Illinois over the nearly 40 years that he was he was in this position of, of power. So, I mean, I think that he, here's what I'll say. I feel that a lot of pe- there's two types of people in Chicago, in Illinois, I suppose. Those who uh, have something to say about Michael Madigan that is coming from a place of some knowledge and understanding about who he is and what he means. And those who have heard his name, but don't actually have any idea of why he's important. And so I really hope that we can make this a show that's not just going to be insider baseball for the people who've been following Madigan's every move for decades, but really to give people an overview of why this is a name everyone knows um, and what what's actually important uh, for us to consider about him. To me, this guy is like a kind of a, uh, Robert Moses figure of Illinois, um, you know, widely known and probably not really well understood. And I think that I remember very clearly the moment when I arrived in Chicago and the first time I heard anything about Michael Madigan was from an Uber driver. This was back when people still talked to their Uber drivers, uh, when Uber was first getting started. And this man was just railing about how corrupt Madigan was. I had no idea what he was talking about. Um, so yeah, I hope we'll be able to give people a sense of, uh, what was really there, why this guy was an effective, such a p- effective political operator and why it was this like comment scandal, you know, rather than like this sexual harassment scandal inside his political operation that actually brought him down in the end. Um, so we're doing this on Tuesday, April 5th at the hideout and uh, 6.30. Grab your tickets. They're available online. 10 bucks. And we'd love to see you. Yeah. And I would just uh, talk a little bit about uh, our guests. Uh, I already mentioned them uh, Elena Hampton is a political strategist. She got her start with Michael Madigan. She was a key political operative for Madigan. Uh, and uh, so she knows the Madigan political organization from inside and out. Uh, she was one of his uh, operatives that he dispatched in the all-important Juliana Stratton versus Ken Duncan campaign of 2016. That's how I first met her. Uh, and um, she worked with Marty Quinn, who's Madigan's top chief political operative or was. Uh, and so Michael Joseph Maddock was not only a speaker of the House, he was the chairman of the uh, Illinois Democratic Party. And as such, no detail was too minor for him in terms of winning elections and holding on to power. Uh, and so there's so many uh, Democratic um, lawmakers who owe their seats to Madigan. If either they were uh, championed by him at the outset of their career or maybe once, once in office they got a little lazy and it was his organization that gathered the signatures for them or brought out the lawyers to fend off uh, challenges to them or actually put operatives into the race uh, to um, – uh, to defeat uh, challengers to him. So it was all about holding on to power. And Elena Hampton was there. Uh, so she knows how the political end of it works, uh, Maya. Uh, she had a falling out with Madigan, as most people know, because uh, she was the victim of sexual harassment by another operative in the Madigan campaign. Uh, and Madigan did, she notified Madigan of it and he did nothing about it. And she had really concrete evidence of it, Maya. Uh, and so to your point, it was very disturbing that Michael Madigan looked the other way and pretended he didn't see it. I've always felt personally 
and this is just me speaking, not Maya, that that was his greatest offense. Just looking the other way at this really concrete, hard evidence, evidence of sexual harassment. And from a, a woman who was like looked up to him, you know, she, she, she was not like a Ben Jarofsky lefty. She was part of his operation. She looked up to him and uh, her, her eyes. What's that? If he, I wonder if this, if what, I mean, I can't, you know, wait to discuss this with Elena uh, on April 5th, but to me, it always seemed like this man miscalculated about the political importance of that situation. Um, and I don't know if it was a generational thing, sexist thing, all of those things combined, but it was really, maybe even at that point, uh, it was possible to kind of see the writing on the wall that his instincts were, were probably failing. Yeah. And I, I tend to look at things more personal. Uh, my, you know, it's about me. I, uh, uh, you know, father of kid girls, uh, grandfather girls. I, I admit I'm old school in this kind of way. If like, if someone that thought of me like an uncle figure came to me and told me about this kind of harassment, I would be so upset on a personal level. Do you follow mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And so like, I'd be, my used to tease me, uncle Ben, she would call me and I'd give her a ride home. I remember it. And that's kind of how. Oh my God, that is so not true. I remember where I was in the car. Uncle Ben is going to give us a ride home. Uh, we were coming back from a reader meeting about four years ago. The point is, I dispute that characterization. Uh, okay, let's go back in time and let's play the tape. Hey, Uncle Ben's gonna give me a ride home. There we go. Um, the point is, is that I just, I just think on a personal level, he left her hanging. If just to put yeah. it mildly, and it was just a horrific judgment. Anyway, so she could talk about the political operation, and she could address the issues that you're raising. You know, whether yeah, uh, I think it's important. I really do think it's important to also discuss. You know, because I think in the in the noise around the political aspect of it, in the conversation around his kind of moral failings on this issue, obviously, um, I think we often lose track of what was it that this guy was doing for 40 years, like for the, you know, what affecting the rest of us, essentially being in this very powerful position uh, in the state house you know, he must have gotten something accomplished and um, he must have done some harm that was way bigger than interpersonal. And he must have, I, I don't know, but I'm assuming he also did some good as well. So I'm really, I'm, I'm excitedly prepping for this conversation. And I'm also uh, looking forward to learning new things that I probably will have missed in my prep as well. Yeah, and before I forget, Dave McKinney, WBEZ journalist extraordinaire, uh, and he has covered uh, so much of the uh, Commonwealth Edison scandal that eventually brought Madigan down. Uh, so he'll be able to fill in a lot of the details on that and together uh, with Elena talk about the pros and cons of Madigan uh, in the state house. So, so it, it will be a fascinating evening I, or a total uh, lessons for uh, about Illinois politics from two very smart people. And I urge everybody to check out that show. Uh, all right, Maya, let's switch now. Uh, crime is on my mind. Judges are on my mind. Sentencing uh, is on my mind. Uh, and I'm watching uh, how the whole issue of criminal justice being twisted uh, as we head into a, um, 
an election season in November. This is not the first time I've lived through this. This is a recurring theme. Uh, Law and order uh, is a guaranteed um, topic that Republicans will raise. Uh, And uh, so this is on my mind as I uh, talked about at the opening. You had a very interesting uh, article, your latest article uh, in Injustice Watch, uh, talking about the judge who uh, oversaw the sentencing of um, uh, Jason Van Dyke for shooting for the murder of Quam McDonald. Uh, and just it was a very dispassionate uh, story uh, that just sort of laid things out. Uh, so why don't you give folks an overview of the story and then uh, we'll zero in on some of the specifics. Yeah, so Injustice Watch has uh, is, is in partnership with uh, the BGA and um, a civic journalism organization called Data Made, uh, a civic, a civic um, uh, data uh, uh, kind of a, a group of data analysts called Data Made. And uh, there's, together, uh, we have access to uh, court data through uh, the circuit, is what we call it. Um, it's a database of every criminal case uh, that was processed in Cook County between 2000 and 2018. So really two, 20 years of court data. And so there's different ways to, you can, you can ask the data all kinds of questions. And as uh, this news about Jason Van Dyke um, broke last month, uh, one, of the, one of the kind of themes that, uh, you know, was back in the public discourse was around how light his sentence was, how unfair it was that he got so little time, uh, you know, questions about whether that sentence was even legal uh, because he got sentenced for second degree murder, but not the 16 counts of aggravated battery, but that's a whole separate question. Um, and I just thought to myself, well, okay, was his sentence actually lighter than the typical Cook County defendant convicted of second degree murder? Was it actually lighter than the typical sentence that Judge Gone uh, hands out for this conviction? And so I started analyzing the data. And what I found is that Jason Van Dyke, uh, his sentence was basically half as long as the typical as the typical Cook County defendant's second degree murder sentence. And more than half as long uh, as, uh, or less than half as long as, as the typical sentence that Judge Gong gives out um, for for this conviction. Um, I found 55 cases that Judge Gong handled between 2000 and 2018 where he imposed sentences for second degree murder. Uh, and in those cases, I mean, there were only five uh, where people got less time. I mean, the minimum time you can get for um, for second degree murder in Illinois is uh, it four years is the it's the it's the very minimum prison time. So there was uh, Jason Van Dyke got six years and uh, nine. Well, he got eighty one months, six six years and nine months, I believe. Um, and that was very very much on the low end of the sentences that Judge Gong gives out, and uh, you know system wide. So. You know, people knew this. People people had been making this critique for all kinds of reasons, because he's a cop, because he's a white man. Um, but I thought it was interesting to actually see the numbers bear bear this out and, and support this claim. Um, and in the process of, of reporting that, I also learned some interesting things about second-degree murder in general. <laughs> uh, yeah, let me go into that a little bit. Uh I've always been confused uh, by second degree murder exactly uh, 
what's at stake there. So why don't you explain the distinctions between second degree murder and first degree? Go ahead. Yeah. So it, uh, it used to be called until the late eighties, uh, it used to be called voluntary manslaughter in Illinois, but then they, they changed it. They, they changed the name to second degree murder, but basically it is a, um, in order to be convicted of second degree murder, a jury has to find that you are guilty of first degree murder, but that there were circumstances around the event that made you believe that your life was in danger, but that that belief was unreasonable. Because if the belief was reasonable, then the jury has to find you not guilty because that's a self-defense case. So the entire Van Dyke trial came down to his lawyer trying to argue that Jason Van Dyke reasonably believed that his life was in danger. The jury found that his he was afraid, but that this fear was not reasonable. Therefore, he was guilty not of first-degree murder, but of second-degree murder. Um, essentially, uh, this, uh, this case, this... Some would probably argue that actually most murders that happen are second degree murders because very often people get killed. Uh, you know, ho- homicides essentially happen uh, when there are fights, when somebody is, you know, thinking that somebody's going to kill them if they don't kill them first, or if there's, you know, domestic violence incidents where somebody, you know, is either in a fit of rage or responding to a fit of rage. You know, there's, there's, um, uh, the kind of the you know premeditated murders uh, that don't involve uh, a conflict um, are re- relatively rare, uh, I think. Uh, but even if the if it was not premeditated, I mean, the kind of murder that I think most people would say was was the Jason Van Dyke Laquan McDonald situation. Um, I would wager that even that is still less common than situations where people are thinking that you know, somebody's going to get killed here and one of them, one of them ends up prevailing or whatever. One of, one of them ends up killing the other person. Anyway, uh, despite the fact that, you know, life circumstances might make it that a lot of murders are second degree murders, very few cases are actually charged as second degree murders because state's attorneys, prosecutors typically like to charge the maximum that they can in order to create maximum leverage to pressure defendants to plead guilty. So if you charge a first degree murder, you're more likely to get a higher bond. The person is more likely to stay in, in jail pre-trial, which will put, create pressure on them to plead guilty rather than go to trial. And this is uh, something obviously we all know about how caseloads in the criminal justice system are so overwhelming that the kind of primary way that the prosecutor's offices deal with them is by just trying to pressure as many people as possible to plead guilty rather than go to trial because trials are expensive, time consuming. And, uh, you know, there's various ways that people can get, you know, kind of punished for going to trial essentially by being dealt with more harshly, uh, prosecuted more aggressively. Judges can be harsher on people. Sometimes they say, um, uh, you know, uh, when, when people try to go to trial. So the entire system, basically, most cases that get charged uh, end up in plea deals, not trials. And so uh, the way, because cases are rarely charged as second-degree murder, 
usually people will start out getting charged with first degree murder and then either as part of a plea deal uh they'll be the prosecutors will be like all right we'll bump this down to second degree murder if you agree to like x amount of time and then you know you're out of our hair um or if they go all the way to trial like jason van dyke's case did they'll end up like his case where you know a judge or a jury essentially decides in the end that yeah this is not the evidence here does not support a first degree murder conviction this is this is second degree murder because of the unreasonable belief in the you know fear of their life being in danger so when you uh consider the factors that may have uh, led uh, the judge to give jason van dyke uh, a lighter sentence than he traditionally does as dispassionately as you can uh, lay out those factors. Well, so judge gone would not talk to me. Um, the office of the chief judge got back to me and said, judge gone does not give interviews. And I'm pretty sure that's actually pretty true. Like, I don't think I've ever seen him uh, give interviews to the press. I think he has a very, very, um, cold relationship with the press in general uh, and that's been pretty consistent throughout his career he's been on the bench since 1991 um so i think that the it's interesting because one of the people i interviewed for the story um um she uh aisha cornelius edwards she's the head of the uh, breathing green legal aid um who was a cook county prosecutor uh, between 2005 and 2013, and then and then uh, left the office and, and got into kind of criminal justice reform work and and legal aid work. So she she made an interesting point. She said that it's kind of you know from her perspective, it's wrong to think about like well, why did Jason Van Dyke get a lighter sentence than everyone else? What we should really be asking is how come everyone else isn't getting treated with the care and attention that Jason Van Dyke got treated because. I mean, from where she was sitting, she was watching this trial very closely. And from her perspective, Jason Judge Gone very carefully examined all the factors, all the mitigating factors, Jason Van Dyke's history, and really kind of listened and treated him as a human being. And that the sentence was an appropriate sentence given all of those factors and all the care that went into this case. And so the question, her point is the question we should be asking isn't that why is Jason Van Dyke's sentence so short? It should be why is everyone else's sentence so long? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people who are convicted of second degree murder, for example, are domestic violence victims that kill their abusers because they are literally being attacked. You know, usually these are people who have a long history of being abused and physically harmed by their abusers. And at a certain point, it comes down to a matter of life and death and people take an action to protect themselves. There's plenty of people, there's plenty of women who are in prison for second degree murder on longer sentences who are abuse victims. So it's, it's really, um, you know, people think about six years being too light, but I think if we just step away a little bit from the kind of like knee jerk, uh, you know, punishment, enjoyment of punishment that we we tend to, you know, really like in our culture. If we just step away from that and, and, and think more humanistically about things, I mean, I think that people who are consistent in their positions about prison being a bad thing for society, about prison not being an effective crime deterrent, about prison being a dangerous place that that makes people more violent, 
um, you know, if you're consistent in those positions, you're gonna, you're not, you're not gonna be out here saying Jason Vardak should have gotten more time. That's really not the answer. Um, it's, uh, you know, six years. I mean, I guess he did, he did basically half of that because uh, he, because of how you can earn good time through good behavior. You know, he did three, 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 and some some change years. Um, incarcerated, you know, that's, that's a long time. Like think about everything that you might've done in the last three years. And on top of that, I'm sure he was treated better than your average prisoner. You know, having been a cop, everybody knew about this case. I'm sure guards were probably better to him than, you know, who knows? I, this is just my speculation, but what I've read is also that he was mostly kept in solitary confinement because of the various dangers and threats to his life. Which, like, again, I don't know what the conditions of his solitary confinement were. What I do know is that pretty universally, solitary confinement is considered to be torture. So, you know, how he spent that time in prison, like, I would would not wager that he had it necessarily easy. And furthermore, what concerns me about all of these cops that go to prison, for however long they go for, is that, (laughs) like, we, do they, we don't, know if they're coming out of there like having been you know radicalized in white supremacist views having been like kind of you know drawn further into positions that support you know racist violence against people that support violence in general i mean i'm just i'm just like i'm just like you know i'm just rambling here but i just i think people are right to encourage us to be careful about saying people need more prison time in any circumstance, no matter who the person is, no matter who they've killed, no matter how egregious their crime, um, I tend to feel um, that the arguments about like, you know, if, if we're gonna say prison is bad, it's bad for everyone, and no, and like we should, in, under no circumstances, be making arguments that anyone should be in prison longer than they go there for. So, yeah, you're, you're not rambling. You're making very important points, and you said something at the outset that I'd like you to delve into a little further. And I uh, I wrote it down. Uh, you said enjoyment of punishment uh, that our our culture uh, seems to share an enjoyment of punishment. And I know, I think I know what you're getting at, but I'd like to hear you go into that a little more. What do you mean by the enjoyment of punishment uh, that culture, uh, that's so alive in our culture? I mean, look, like, it's it's something that just, it's maybe it comes from a sort of, um, you know, more primordial reflexes that human beings have. I, I don't tend to buy those kinds of arguments much, but you know, there's a sense of pleasure in seeing justice done in seeing, you know, somebody who we consider to be the bad guy to be like going down. It's like our entire entertainment industry is, is kind of based on, on these kinds of narratives. Um, and so everything in our culture from the time that we're really little encouraging, encourages us to associate positive feelings with the sight of somebody who we consider to be deserving of it to be punished. It's the, it's, I mean, it's the same reflex that there are people out there who say Laquan McDonald got exactly what he deserved because he was, you know, high and walking around allegedly, you know, popping people's tires with a knife, you know, whatever, like people, people make those arguments and I'm not at all begrudging. Look like Laquan McDonald's family 
those folks have a right to whatever position they want to take. They have a right to say that Jason Van Dyke should have never seen the light of day again. They should have been in prison for the rest of his life. It's, it's you know, it's totally understandable uh, that people, people are mad about this and people are, um, especially people who were close to Laquan McDonald, the, who, who feel that they were not, um, that justice was not served here. And then this is like a further disrespect to, you know, their, their loved one um, and, and them. So I'm not really begrudging them the, the kind of like desire to have seen Jason and I go away for longer. But I think that like, as we move away from the epicenter of this pain, um, as it lived amongst the people closest to the victim here, like, I think that in our wider culture, like the, you know, people who are commentators, reporters, or whatever, like people who aren't directly personally impacted by this loss, I do think that like it's um, it's worth it to be skeptical of the kind of yeah de- de- the glee the glee we might feel to see like you know a person who seems to deserve it like go down for what they did. Um, I, I'm with you, and uh, you know, again, vindictive, like thinking about like vindic- vindictiveness, and I, like I, look, I have like this is not I'm I'm not saying I feel like any sympathy for Jason Van Dyke. I'm not in, implying that, but I just think that you know my kind of personal principles compel me to be consistent. You know, if 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 I am. If I feel convinced by arguments that prison is bad for our society, it's bad for the people there. It's it's bad for all of us who aren't there. Mm-hmm. Like I can't make you know how would I be consistent in my views if I had those views to, to say that like oh yeah it's bad for everybody except for these people. These people should be in prison forever. You know what I mean? Like it's it's just. Um, I don't necessarily think like if you don't believe in prison as a problem solving mechanism for social issues, well, then, I mean, you can't you can't believe that it's solving this particular problem either. I'm with you. And you're what you're arguing for uh, is something that's um, uh, really lost in society. And that's called consistency. Uh, And you're consistent in your worldview. You're consistent in your principles. Uh, I, I would respect somebody, even if I disagree with them, if I felt that there was a consistency to them. But of course, we we pick and choose when we're going to stick to our principles at all times. Uh, and sometimes we do it for politically, just pure political uh, reasons. Like, as I said at the outset, with the Katanji Brown Jackson rhetoric that's coming out of Washington. And other times we do it because we just naturally conflicted. And I'll give you an example. Um, after the January 6th insurrection, we had a lot of people come on the show and make the point um, about the images of security guards letting, helping um, some of the uh, older insurrectionists down the step. There was this one image, I don't know if you saw, of a security guard or a guard uh, leading this older woman down the Capitol steps. And people come on the show and go, can you imagine them doing that if she wasn't an older white woman? It was a black woman. And I totally understood that reaction, but I had the feeling that 
you had when you started this by, well, maybe that's how they should treat everybody. It's not that. So what do you want them to treat the older white woman? Like they would treat a black person, beat her up. Or do you want them to treat the older, the black person, like they would treat a white person, let her down the stairs, which is the point you were making uh, in terms of the judges uh, sentencing of, of um, Van Dyke. And it's just so hard, Maya in society right now to yeah and I think I, but I also do think that it's something that every person has to um you know it's very hard to convince people to change their views on this stuff like it's something that really every person has to go through individually and you know through a process of kind of like political consciousness building and education and it's it's not a position that's very easy to it's not a it's not a worldview that you can easily i think convince people of just by uh you know just by talking about it at them you know so yes that is for sure yeah, uh, everyone should read the story <laughs> in justicewatch.org you'll find it there as well as actually this this is no longer my latest story because we just published the story today uh just right before uh i i came on um that i wrote about a man who walked out of prison a couple weeks ago in Joliet, um, 28 years earlier than he expected. Um, he was convicted. He was convicted of a first degree murder. He did not fire a gun at anybody. He happened to be driving a car from which somebody else fired a gun. A person that this guy did not even know had a gun. He was arrested first. Corzell Cole is his name. He, this was this was a case out of Joliet in the early 2000s. Corzell Cole was arrested first. It was put on trial. His lawyers did not let him testify, and he was convicted of first degree murder um, because the jury had no information about anything other than that he was driving the car through from which this murder, this shooting occurred, and. Based on the state's accountability theory, he was held accountable just as much as the person who was who was shooting. But the, at the time that Corzell went to trial, the shooter had not yet been arrested. And he was arrested a year later and went to trial a year later. And when he went to trial, he testified that he was fearing for his life because there was like an ongoing conflict between him and people in the other car. And he was sure that if he didn't shoot first, he would be killed. So... That guy got set, got sentenced. He got convicted of second degree murder because the jury found that a murder did occur, but that his fear was unreasonable, uh, but that he was afraid. Uh, so the guy who was the shooter ended up getting a lighter sentence than the first guy who was convicted of first degree murder. Wow. So. Um, a couple of months ago, so Corzell was represented by uh, some attorneys from Northwestern Center for Wrongful Conviction, and he had like a big support team around him. He was he's just been like had an incredible record of pursuing his education while he was in prison. Um, uh, really kind of everyone talked about him as really just like an amazing leader for his peers. So his lawyers had were seeking a clemency petition, actually, uh, try to get the government to pardon him. And the Will County State's Attorney, James Glasgow, who was, who's like a seven-term incumbent, um, 
he said, wait a second, this this is all messed up. This guy went away for a murder, a first degree murder that never even happened because the person that shot was never convicted of first degree murder. So what he ended up doing was getting the case back to court and he cited a new law that we have on the books um, that talks about resentencing in the interest of justice. And um, he was, in the end of February, they threw out his first degree murder conviction. He had to plead guilty to the second degree murder, but even though he does not believe that he was guilty at all, what was on the table was that if he pled guilty to the second degree murder, he could walk out of prison immediately because he had already done all this time. Mm-hmm. Um, he, had, he, was, he was in prison for 19 years and four months, um, his entire adult life, basically. And um, so he, wa- he walked out a couple of weeks ago, 38 years old. What a horrific story. 19 years. Yeah. And yep. uh, he didn't even fire the gun. He didn't even know there was a gun in the car. Yeah. <laughs> so he said, the way he said it to me, was like, look, like, I feel like I've been wrongfully convicted all the way, but I just couldn't pass up an opportunity to just get out of prison. You know, what, what can you say? I would have taken the same deal. Yeah. I would have taken the same deal. I mean, you're tagged. Yes, you're tagged with an unjust conviction. Uh, but you're right. I know there's some people of... That is tenaciously stubborn uh, and insistent, and they would, they might not take that deal. Uh, but uh, I would have taken the same deal and walked out. He lived his kids' entire lives. Like he had, he has three kids in their twenties, um, three sons. He missed their entire lives, their entire childhoods, basically. I think that you know, yeah, some people. I think that in, in a more hopeless situation, some maybe older people or whatever. I don't know. Some people wouldn't have taken the deal, but. I really, I mean, it makes total sense to me that he just wanted to get a chance to live some kind of life with his family, um, you know, even though clearly that life is going to be complicated by a felony conviction on his background. And and this is me speaking now, Maya. Talk about complicated. It'll be that much harder. if When we live in an uh, environment of just tough law and order, we're, we're being bombarded with images that we're under siege and are, uh, we're in danger. And so we should just, just be tougher, you know, regardless of what it means uh, to people who get caught up in the criminal justice system, who are not, uh, in the, like the case of uh, Jason Van Dyke, police officers who are going to get a lot of sympathy uh, in the newspapers and a lot of sympathy from the general public. It's just, there's going to be stories like this. And so, it's hard to get people to have compassion uh, at moments like this, but I, I at least hope that common sense prevails in some level. That's me talking about Maya. Maya, you also uh, wanted to mention something about Injustice Watch, a profile of judges, uh, judicial candidates. I want you to take the opportunity to do that. Yeah, this is the last thing I want to say, um, is now the filing period for um, uh, judicial candidates has well, for all candidates, has closed for the primary election. And um, we have a, if you go to injusticewatch.org and click on judicial election guide at the top of the page, uh, you will see uh, an opportunity, there's a way for you to um, look at a form that we created that lists all of the candidates for judge. And if you know any of these people, if you have ha- if they have been your lawyer, if you've known them professionally or personally, or have had them be your judge before, because some of these people are already sitting judges. Um, 
if if you ha- if you know anything about them, if you have any thoughts about them becoming a judge, there's a way for you to share those thoughts with us either anonymously or share your contact information if you don't mind chatting with one of us. Um, so that's injusticewatch, all one word, dot org. And then at the top of the page, you can click on judicial election guide and you will see a link to that form. Um, it's, uh, there was actually, um, the next story I'm planning is about how there's been fewer candidates filing, you know, to run for judge than like pretty much in any other year on record. So I'm going to try to get to the bottom of, of that. I'm guessing it has something to do with how hard it is to collect petition signatures when there's COVID and it's in the middle of winter. (laughs) So yeah, we, um, Mm. we're, we're in the heat of researching our judicial election guide. So any kind of tips, information about these candidates could be really helpful. All right. Very good. Maya, thank you so much. Uh, and I uh, will see you April 5th at the hideout. Uh, once again, the subject will be Michael Madigan, Elena Hampton and Dave McKinney will be joining us. And like I said before, uh, they really know their stuff, the two of them. Uh, and I'm going to sit back and learn a lot. And by the way, we, we all, we do have questions. Uh, I just have to always point this out. So Maya and I will make a I know that a lot of uh, the people who show up, my are going to have what questions they're going to want to ask Elena uh, and Dave. So I'm going to make a pledge right now that we're going to uh, give ample time for questions from the audience. That's where you get the curveballs. You never know. You know what I mean? My, <laughs> those first Tuesday curveball, where did that come from? And uh, it's always, yeah, fun. Uh, exactly. All right. Very good. Maya, thank you so much from Injustice Watch, uh, my partner in crime at First Tuesdays uh, at the hideout on April 5th and my former colleague at my beloved Chicago Reader. Thank you very much, Maya. Uh, I appreciate it. And um, all right. And that's our show for today. Dennis, uh, you did an outstanding job as always. Well, and done. as Maya will tell you. of course, is not done. <laughs> uh, Mike Flannery, that is Vintage Mike Flannery journalism did a great job, Flannery. You know you did. You know you're feeling pretty good about it. Uh, really uh, <laughs> asking Richard Irvin the question about abortion rights. Habit, habit, habit. It was the response. All right. Uh, I want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of all in Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Maya will tell you, back home and on, they call him Dr. D, and the D stands for the marvelous. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. 